different life story, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. And today, another day for an interview. And I have got Maureen Kavanagh back. Maureen is the author of If You Love Me. If you haven't bought that book after the last interview I've done with her, you really need to think hard. So go out there, homework, buy her book. It's absolutely bloody gorgeous. Uh, because it's a mother's journey through her daughter's opioid addiction. And it's written with such a grit, with such an honesty. Uh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So any, it's a, it's a great, great, great book for any person who deals with someone they love who is in the throes of addiction. Because it doesn't matter if it is opiates, if it is alcohol, if it is other drugs. We are all the same. We love the person but we hate what the person is doing. And there is so much trauma associated with that. And guys, if you haven't uh, listened to, to Maureen's interview, go back, it is absolutely stunning. But today we've got Maureen back and, and because she has become a force to be reckoned with out there. She, is, uh, she made sense out of her journey because she decided to speak up and I think once you have done that once, uh, it is it is something very, very, very cool to do because suddenly you make sense out of this trauma that has come to you. And and Maureen, you have been a teacher. You taught us uh, or told us that uh, in the previous interview. But in in summary, you have been a woman who loves facts and who has been educating herself very aggressively after you found out that your daughter was dealing with the demon of, of, of heroin. So today I want to, to use your beautiful brain and actually let's talk about, about the figures that you have come across and about the impact on society of heroin. Let's talk actually honest about it. Now, not as a personal journey, but let's look at the reality. So today, an in-depth reality check of the opioid crisis in the United States and what is happening right now with COVID and the consequences that we see in the addiction field. Maureen, thank you so much for coming back onto my show. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Maureen, it is, we are, you first of all are in the United States which has been unfortunately one of the, the countries where opiate addiction has been highlighted the most. Why was that actually the case? What made America so special? What was the, the, the why, how did it come all about? What is your take on those things? I mean, just a lack of regulation, I think, and greed. Greed on, the, on behalf of mm. Purdue Pharmaceuticals and the Sackler family. Um, and McKinsey, the consulting firm that helped them to um, to distribute these opioids to you know enough to to kill whole towns in, in in you know when it was obviously they would it was obvious that they were doing something wrong and they could see that huge quantities of drugs were going to certain doctors in certain towns they just kept they kept they became they came up with a formula McKinsey this is a big consulting group in um, the United States came up with like a formula 
that they could use to push more where they were already going. So, I mean, and then the greed on behalf on the do uh, doctors have behalf the greedy, greedy people that were making money off of this, mm. and um, they just flooded the market with opioids. Mm. And then um, when they started to pull back on the opioids, then there was the underground market and people started going to heroin because the um, opioids were too expensive, the pills. And um, now we have uh, fentanyl, which is even, I believe it's cheaper and um, more deadly. So, I mean, this is really, uh, this was a man-made problem, right? There was just so much, so much, of the opioids, so much uh, heroin out there that it became so easy to find, especially after the we started to pull back a little bit and regulate the opioids that people gravitated towards that. So, you know, now uh, Purdue and the Sackler family are trying to get out of paying for this. They filed for bankruptcy. They've um, trying to protect, protect their own assets. But there has been there have been some settlements, and McKinsey, the consulting group, just settled as well. And um, hopefully, some of this money will go to help people that are currently um, addicted and their families to find help. But I mean, the damage they've done, and these people will never suffer the way they should. They should be criminally prosecuted for this. And I think that is that is such a such a good statement. If you, I remember 10 years or so ago, there was a, 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 a television series, The Glades, and it was basically a big town cop goes back to where he grew up in the Everglades in Florida. And I remember watching that series and there was not a single episode in that series where not someone did oxycodone. Mm -hmm. You know, someone wanted to go to a party. Okay, let's have an oxycodone and have a drink. Let's go to the party. Or let's have some sex with a stranger. Come on, shall we share an oxycodone and then have sex? And I thought, what the hell? <laughs> what did I miss? And that was, so for this phenomenon to come into the, the more or less accepted uh, television, you know, that's life in the United States. What the hell? So that it was, was just yeah. so much. I mean, yeah. you go and get your tooth out and you were given 30 Vicodin or, um, you know, you have a root canal, you're given 30 oxycodone. Um, you break your arm, you're given 60. I mean, you could have your arm ripped off and you wouldn't need 60. Yeah. It, it's just so the overprescribing on top of just the illegal overprescribing. Just the, the idea was that, and, you know, it's, Purdue influenced that mm. scale, the pain scale, one mm. to ten. Mm. They they were involved in that. So it, mm. you know, and everybody was a ten, nine. Everybody walking yeah. around, you know, and it, it, but there was nothing nothing to base it on. Mm. So you were nine to ten. You got some oxycodone. Now you mm. get lots more. We can get give us a call. We'll give you more. Mm. And we're confused as to how that um, how that happened. Mm. I mean, it just was. It's a mess. It was a mess here. It's gotten a little bit better, but now it's gone in the other direction too. So people have legitimate pain, and then everybody then they're being looked at as um, as uh, drug seeking when exactly. they have. So it's just I don't know where it's going or what's going to happen with this, but it's not good. So I think as a doctor, I want to say a few words, and as an anesthetist who prescribes opiates on a daily basis and uses them in virtually every single patient. Uh, as part of their 
operation as part of going through some some very painful procedures uh, the opiates in their own right are godsend they are beautiful and without them modern anesthetics would be uh, not pretty whatsoever okay so let's be let's not not throw the child out with the bathwater. the mm. opiates in their own right are good things and that means for the right patient under the right circumstances and in the right time under the right setting i.e supervision etc the problem of course comes in when people realize that opiates regardless of it is morphine oxycodone codeine heroin all of these they actually take the emotional pain away as well and they make mm -hmm. you feel good you don't have to deal with the trauma from your childhood you don't have to deal with the shit that is your life and suddenly you take it for not the right reasons and it actually makes you feel good it's this beautiful numbing effect and you just don't give a damn anymore. What nicer could there be when you live a life that maybe is not so nice? So that is where this comes from. And it's not a new phenomenon. Let's be quite clear. I mean, why did the English uh, get so much into China? Um, it was an opium war, essentially. There was, there was, we're talking 18th, 19th century, that, that uh, opium dens were all the rage. People were hanging around and uh, were, were smoking their opium and were completely not stoned. They were you know, under the influence. And it was, uh, it was in brutal times just as much as there were the gin palaces and just that addiction has been around all the time. The problem, what we have seen in the last 25 years, however, is that, as you said, the greed, uh, prior to that, it was sort of, you know, the cocaine and the, the heroin maiden in the golden, in the golden triangle in, in Asia or in, in, in Colombia, etc. So it was criminal gangs that basically created that and then flooded the market. Now suddenly we had very respectable pharmaceutical companies who were actually going there. And those people who were actually supposed to look out for you, the doctors, became an integral part in providing this huge amount of drugs to people who were potentially at risk or who were very clearly drug seeking. Right. That's the huge difference. And that's what you have been alluding to, greed is i think there you were we were saying in the preamble to this to this uh talk we we were discussing that there is actually a large uh um geographic uh component to that because if you look at where where 80 percent of the oxycodone was sold it was really down there florida and the, the the lower part of the united states the east why was that I mean, well, they, I think it was because the regulations were even more lax. They were just weren't, they weren't paying. It. There was nobody watching. Right. There was nobody watching. And there was, and the people that were watching were turning, turning a blind eye. Because that's why we have all the treatment centers in Florida. And we had such a mess down in Florida with the treatment centers. The, tra the more money and greed followed the overprescribing. But there's a route that people would drive, and um, I can't think of, off the top of my head what they would call it, but down to Florida and back again, they were putting buses of people down there to go down to these doctors and, and get prescriptions and bring them back up again. 
kidding me? Can you me? imagine? No. <laughs> no. I mean, there's a there's a great book by Beth Macy called um, um, oh, she's a, she's a, a fabulous uh, author. I can't think of the name of it, but she talks about we're one of like ground zero almost in West Virginia. Yeah. And um, it's I mean, there's a couple of books that have been written about yeah. those particular areas where this was um, where the overprescribing started. People that worked in coal mines and yeah. were and had back issues, so they started prescribing, and then they started overprescribing, and then whole towns became just inundated with all of these drugs and then people started coming there looking for the drugs i mean it's mm. it's you know not rocket if, science right let me play devil's advocate if now drugs become so easily available through uh nefarious doctors what was the impact on the gangs were the gangs was there less violence because ultimately, what you could argue is that now you you basically take the financial drive out of the gangs to sell their drugs. Well, you can always sell it cheaper, right? You ah. can sell it cheaper. You can sell it more potent. You can. Yeah. I mean, there's always you know. Mm. So that's a reason. So the free availability uh, was not translating into a drop in crime or gang activity, etc. Because no, because eventually it's the it, you know it started to become very obvious there was a problem, mm. and there started to be tighter regulations. And when the tighter regulations came along, people of turned course. to of to course. the illegal uh, drugs such as heroin and fentanyl. Mm. Yeah, and then therefore, actually, the gangs were saying, "Thank you very much. You right. got them addicted. Now we carry on. Hey, yes. we are your friends. Ah, yeah. yeah. Okay. No, that of course makes a lot of sense. Um, so." We have got initially, we had oxycodone, and that was the main problem. We are talking now 90s, early 2000s, that that sort of started appearing. But nowadays, we are talking fentanyl, we're talking heroin. What is your take on how this journey, this meandering from drug to drug actually occurred? And for me, the question as an anesthetist, fentanyl, I use every single day. Yeah. And it is so hard, hard regulated for crying out loud. If someone drops an ampule, the paper war around that. Well, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but yeah. you know, it is no, 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 no. We are very, very careful. So there's no way that someone nicks some fentanyl and then goes out to sell it. There's no way in hell. So where the hell They're is it coming it. from? Yeah. They're creating it in China, in Mexico. It's coming into the United States. They're probably creating it in the United States too. But um, and and it's coming in as a substitute for heroin. Mm. And keep you know when people are making things, they're not gonna they don't they're not chemists. You know what I mean? They're no. it's some you know Jamok in his uh, garage making this, and um, then they're pressing it into pills too. So we have a lot of pressed fentanyl here that's supposed to be a a million different things, and it's actually fentanyl. And then they are using it and doing it over a spoon, or how do people they're actually selling use it? Yeah, they're selling it and using it as if it was whatever drug they thought they were buying. Yeah. So it comes in a, in a in the in the pressed form, but then how do you use it? How actually people? How do addicts? It so it depends. I mean, if it's a benzo, you would you know take it the way you would take a benzo, but there it's fentanyl. 
made by some made by some guy in his garage mm. and it's killing people mm. and they thought they were taking one thing and meanwhile they're taking another oh that's that's of course the big thing there was a beautiful study uh from the uk actually probably 20 years ago now where one saturday night the research uh team went out to rave parties and bought ecstasy tablets uh, bought 24 i think uh ecstasy tablets and took them to the lab and actually analyzed what was in there and I think two or three of them had ecstasy in there. Anything else uh, was was possible from talcum powder and nothing to ketamine, 200 milligrams or horse tranquilizer to all kind of mm -hmm. other shit. So you have no idea what you're getting on the street. And that's right. the problem. The other thing I want to I want to teach the listeners who um, who have no idea maybe about opiates or haven't got the depth of understanding that we two have Fentanyl is a very, very potent drug. Now that drug, if I inject a dose for an anesthetic, um, that will, it has a small therapeutic window. So between pain relief and you stopping breathing, that's not such a big, big, big jump there. So it is highly, highly potent. It's working very quick and it therefore goes very quickly into your system. No surprise, you get this quick high. But you know, it acts a very short time, 20, 30 minutes, something like that, depending on the, the amount that you're injecting. Whilst heroin might actually work, you know, several hours. So, and is less, less potent, less, less of an issue. So not that I, I condone one or the other. I just want to teach you that the difference, what the differences are. And you're suddenly playing no longer with something where you can make a little mistake. If you make a little mistake right. with fentanyl, you're dead. And I think right. that's... So, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, it's a great business plan too, right? Because you're getting people higher and you um, are getting them to use more frequently. Exactly. Exactly right. So even if it is cheaper, because it's such a short time that it lasts, you know, basically it becomes a full time activity um, right. to to inject and, of course, to get the money to inject. How, do you know what is the current price for fentanyl? Do you know? I don't. I don't. But I know that there's nothing. There's very little heroin in this my, in the area that I'm in. Yeah. In the northeast, it's all fentanyl. Just so bizarre so bizarre but it's you know it's it's made not in a lab it's not this is not you know medical grade uh fentanyl it's it's made somewhere else hmm. have you got a grasp on the extent of uh the the fentanyl wave that is that is hitting america how many people are actually admitting to using fentanyl do you have any any data do you know that anything know. no no that i don't yeah. know but i will tell you that um i think we talked about this before that we're expecting last year was about eighty-two thousand people passed from an overdose from from an opioid overdose so when when you look at um i mean i always in i always show pictures of the super bowl mm -hmm. and that's that's about eighty-two thousand people wow so if you picture the super, a Super Bowl stadium, uh, mm. football stadium here in the United States, completely full, mm. um, that's about 82,000 people. Now picture every one of those people has about five people that they will mm. grieve heavily for this person, mm. between one and five. But mm. um, so then, then 
to compound that by all the people mm. whose lives will be changed because that person is no longer with us. And you can kind of see the extent of, of um, the pain that this is causing. And it's for sure not getting easier because ultimately, why do we use? Because we are in, in, in trouble. We want to numb the pain in mm -hmm. our lives. And COVID, unfortunately, will have had such an impact on many families with regards to financial problems, with regards to losing jobs. Um, we here in Rotorua, we have got a very strong uh, focus on tourism. And many of the, the places had to lay off uh, a lot of people actually, because there's just no more busloads of Chinese and Korean tourists coming through. So it has changed our our setting here quite tremendously. Mm -hmm. And no doubt it will have done exactly the same in the United States uh, for different reasons and different settings. Yeah. So there we are. So trauma is not getting less, if at all it has been getting worse. So. One previous guest said to me, she doesn't say what the fuck anymore. She says, what the 2020 um, or <laughs> get the 2020 out of here. So we were thinking 2020 is really the bad thing. And actually, fairness, 2021 is not much better, is it so far? No, it looks a lot like 2020. Actually, <laughs> exactly. Here, exactly for you guys. Hopefully out there. we're seeing the other side of it. And, mm. You know, this is going to have an impact on, on, on uh, children that are that are uh, have been isolated for the last year who knows what the impact that's going to be no. we also have you know when you talk about eighty-two thousand people probably half of those people have children yeah so those are children growing up without without parents um this is it, this is devastating this is devastating it is huge and the eighty-two thousand is are those people that we know about Mm -hmm. um, where very clearly autopsies were done and where uh, it was more or less clear. There's probably a, a, a sort of a, a gray figure out there where people were labeled to have died of other causes, um, mm -hmm. where very much addiction might have contributed to either those oh. causes or which were addicted, but another disease ravaged them first. So mm -hmm. I think there is probably an undercurrent there that is stronger than what we recognize. We only Absolutely. see the deaths and we don't see all the other things there that are around it. Yeah, if absolutely. You, when you go to schools nowadays, what is the response that you're getting? You know, people, I, I talk a lot to parent groups yeah. and it's always, especially at a school, people don't like to admit that this is happening. They wanna hide their head. Um, there's the schools, there's a real reluctance on even bringing the subject out because it's kind of in admitting that there's a problem, which heads up, there's a problem everywhere. So there's no way that there's not a problem. And even if there's not a problem in the moment, you still have people that are going to go out into the world. You want to educate their families. You want to educate them. And mm. then you have the problem of the stigma of actually showing up mm. for something like mm. this, right? Because if you go, then maybe that means that you, um, that you need the help, or it. If it's not that, then you're, you're the families that are coming that aren't afraid that will sit in the audience and learn something. 
are the families that don't need to know it. You know, it's the family that kind of maybe they have this in their family. I'm not going there. Everybody will know. So I, it's really hard to um, to educate in the schools. It's a very it's a very kind of it's a difficult um, it's a difficult thing to get in there with what, in my opinion, what they need to do here in the United States. You have to go to a meeting before your kids play sports. Now, they don't talk about opioids in the meeting. And if they do, they talk about it quickly. Um, they tell you all the things that you have to do and the things you're responsible for and all that kind of stuff. You also, um, at the end of the year, they'll have a prom or, you know, big dance at the end of the year. And you have to go before your kids go to prom, you have to go to a meeting and you have to mm -hmm. sit through this, you know, all what's going to happen. They need to take both of those and include an hour on, on uh, prevention. <clears throat> So that this way, families are in there because they have no choice because they're going to go to this thing regardless mm. and be, for another reasons and let them get educated on prevention. But, you know, that's I haven't been able to make that inroad yet. If there is such a strong current of opioid addiction and, and looking in your in your press, there is it's not hidden away is it it's there bang no. bang bang just another another i don't know how many hundred people died this month on there uh, bigger than the road toll etc 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 so yet there is this according to you this this kind of hesitation to address that problem uh when it matters most with the young people i i can't understand that is there when you when you come to to some schools here there are big signs and i keep forgetting them so it's typically acronyms so stop and uh dare um oh no i'm i'm struggling to to come up it's basically um dare d-a-r-e oh damn it um it's basically things uh to to highlight the issue of drug addiction and mm -hmm. to uh, to give the children a something to hold on to. No, we stand for we stand for integrity. We stand for truth. We stand for these kind of things. These are our values, and drugs don't fit with us, and kind of a thing. So there are actually there's this kind of very, very overt, very clear message there. No, we are against drugs. We will speak out. Mm -hmm. There is not such a thing over there. I, it's, it's it depends, you know, like there's here and there, here and there. What we need to be doing is in, is educating young people on the physiology of addiction. Mm. We need to teach them what happens that and in a person's brain that is completely and totally out of their hands, mm. right? So if they think that they can um, they can control it, we know as young people, right? They think we're, every young person thinks they're special, right? And they think that this is the reason why they drive fast, why, the reason why they drink and drive, right? This is the reason they do all the things because that prefrontal cortex, that part of your brain that, that governs uh, logic and reason and executive functioning and planning and all those yeah. things, they're not thinking out like that, right? Mm -hmm. But we have to give them the, we have to give them information so this way they can't say well this is this is I mean nobody tells uh, a young person that you, that part of your brain is not developed which is why you can't rent a car which is why you know that certain things are at, you can't sign a contract for mm -hmm. until you're a certain age we we have to explain to kids what happens in their brain regardless of how smart you are what color you are who you, what your family is like all of these mm -hmm. things 
happen to everybody. So when they understand that maybe, and what happens when you smoke pot, what happens when you drink alcohol, what happens when you do heroin? And when we can start to show them that, you know, that you're affecting your dope, the dopamine production in your brain, and that is totally out of your control. You can't control that. And that the fact is that if we wait until we're 24 mm. to ever do anything, we have a much lower uh, chance of get, becoming addicted to anything. But we have to start, we, uh, you know, we have to start explaining these things, right. not just say this is bad, don't do it. Well, that just would make me want to do it if I was young, right? But we have to, and we have to do this with parents too. Yeah. There's these two researchers in uh, the United States team, but the two leads are uh, Bradshaw and Shumway. And they're out of the University of Texas Tech. They've done some of this research on the brains of parents that are impacted by, or love when that's impacted by uh, someone else's substance use disorder. I love this because somebody I was when I first read this, I was like, oh, my God, somebody actually gives a shit about what's happening in my brain, because I'm I'm now. And if you've read the book, you know, I was out of my mind. I was, you know, totally working on the lizard brain. Right. It was all about the lizard brain. There was no no. You know, I wasn't thinking clearly. Mm. I couldn't work. I couldn't sleep. I was just sick. I, and I say sick and I mean, probably as sick as she was. And, um, I, um, I stumbled upon this research and they did, um, functional MRI testing on the par on the brains of a family, me family members, those that rated themselves as having a low level of, uh, codependency, high family functioning all the way to the families that were totally immersed, completely, um, you know, enmeshed with, the, with their loved one. And the people that they would show an image to um, a family that was completely sucked in and their, the brain would light off, light up. Like it was like, and I always picture my brain was probably like Las Vegas on a Saturday night. It was like all the, all the, the parts of the brain that govern, um, govern, you know, whether you're going to um, work off the, the amygdala, that, oh. that kind of, you know, that fight or flight, just do this. All of those parts were lighting up. But coincidentally, it's not coincidentally, it makes perfect sense that this is the same part of the brain that lights up in uh, with somebody who has an addiction that lights up when they have a craving. So you see the brain of a parent that is said they're shown this picture of their loved one getting into treatment and they're like, oh my God, I'll do anything to get them into treatment. That part of the brain lights uh, up. That It's the same part of the brain that lights up during a craving. Sure. So when I'm working with parents, I say, you know what? Now you know what a craving feels like, right? Because they don't understand why Johnny was on his way to court and he used on his way to court. It's like, what are you doing? That doesn't even make any sense. But it does if you think about it like that. Yeah. That's the thing that drove me to try to kill somebody with a baseball bat, <laughs> which I typically don't do. <laughs> but um, so, I mean, it's not usually how I operate. Um, but it's that that hijack, you know, uh, of uh, um, uh, yeah. but it's now parents know what a, a craving feels like when they hear this. Yeah. And so we also know that, you know, something's going on that's beyond our control, but we have to start sharing this information with people, both parents and young people, so that they can make informed decisions. Because when I understood this, I started to find ways, just like we teach people when they're in treatment and have a craving, mm -hmm. how to fight the craving. 
Mm. Well, I had to learn ways to fight the craving too, because mm. my, my brain was not working. So there are things you can do or it was working, but it was not being effective. Mm. And I had to teach my things, self things that I can do when I get into that, that space that brings that thinking part of your brain back online. Just like we do when someone has when someone's in recovery to teach them those things to fight the craving. It's beautiful how you you draw the parallel there in between what is happening in the loved one and what is happening in the addict. And that again, if we accept that as a given, you then wonder why we do not address the family more as part of the treatment, as part of the treatment plan. I certainly found that an issue when I went into rehab. I had these four glorious weeks of, of, of beautiful care, self-discovery, where people really helping me for, the, for one of the worst times in my life. And I had all this beautiful support. Meanwhile, my wife and my children went back to school she was worrying about the additional costs that the rehab was costing, uh, all those kind of things. She was with the nose to the grindstone, no, uh, very little support, uh, not necessarily due to the treatment program. They were just in a different town. She couldn't just come on the Wednesday night to the family evening, etc. So it was, it was just there were logistical problems there. Yeah. But bottom line is, even if that had occurred, even if she was living next to that center. There would have only been a Wednesday night family meeting and maybe some and visiting. Everybody would have probably would have held hands and and just told their story and not become educated. Yeah, something like that. Um, this, <laughs> this, they were actually very good. They were actually using a very similar system as you have um, with some education to start off with, etc. So I know that. But even then, we are talking what four weeks no, um, of two hours for them compared with. Well, I was basically going to school, so to speak, from the morning till four o'clock in the afternoon, where I had lectures and, and self-improvement and things like that. So it was eight hours a day that I was immersed in rehabilitation. And just compare that, these two settings. And right. I think I think my rehab was very outstanding. Also, just with those two hours of value to the family, Many other rehabs don't even have the, the, the money or the setup to look after the, the relatives. Is that your impression as well? Yeah, I mean, we're mostly private treatment in the United States. Mm. So you have to have your own insurance or you mm. have to be able to pay cash for that. And um, I, well, when I was going through this with my daughter, she walked into, walked into over 40 different treatment opportunities, I like to call them. Um, and of those 40 different times she went into treatment, I was offered three family meetings um, with a counselor, and it was all around discharge planning. <laughs> Zero education. Zero education. Are so, you um, no, and we had excellent insurance, and she went to really good places. So, I'm not saying that there isn't anywhere that was doing it, but I didn't receive any. And as uh, I'm fairly vocal uh, in my uh, needs, so I uh, was asking uh, uh. for help, but I was not receiving any. And this is the reason why I do what I do yeah. because it yeah. just doesn't it doesn't exist here. Yeah. 
And, when was um, that? It's, uh, Maureen, when was that? What uh, what time frame are we talking about? Oh, not that, you know, a while ago, but not that four years ago. Uh, All right. Eight years ago. Oh, you know, so it's not it's not a million years ago. Yeah. 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 Shit, it's, you would have you would have expected that that people recognize that. I mean, for us too, it is it is as greed. clear as 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 yeah. the sky. And it's more greed. You know what I mean? But the problem is, is this is a simple fix. You can do this and offer it to the community, yeah. but pe they're just not doing it. And they need to be made to do it. And they, right. need, they need to be shamed into doing it. I'm up for the job. Or if they need to be helped, I can help with that too. Yeah. But either way, this is going to happen yeah. because that's what, it just takes a couple of really good places or good treatment centers and good people to turn the tide because once one does it, they all have to follow. Hmm. Scary, so, scary. It's unfortunate, you know. It's unfortunate that it, they don't see the value in that. But yeah. and you know, it, it, I some people have said to me that it's because they want them to come back. They no. they're happy, you know, and that's you know ridiculous. Oh, there's no. no shortage of there's no shortage of people that need to go into treatment. So that can't possibly be it. But um, there has to be some kind of. Um, there needs to be family help for the entire family because what's mm -hmm. happening is we have people, and usually in the United States, it's 21 days, 28 days, something mm -hmm. like that. And they're coming back to families that are honestly sicker than they were when they left because we've been white knuckling it. We've been holding our breath, waiting for the person to come home. And when they come home, we, we, they come, our loved ones come home all shiny and new, right? Mm -hmm. We have no education and we can screw you up in about 10 seconds because we bring you right back down. <laughs> so that's not, that's not effective. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense in any way. So I'm not quite sure why we haven't gotten that yet. I haven't taken so far that into consideration actually. Now that you say it, it is so blatantly obvious that I was blessed because I had a supportive family and they were there for me. But I mean, for me, as when I came home, I somehow expected fanfaries and, and rose petals in my way for all the hard work that I've done. Uh, yeah, guess what? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I had, they had, they, they, they were very cagey and think, oh, yeah, right. And how many times has he lied that he would stop and, and things like that. So there was, of course, there, there was, there were months of uh, probably years of, of my wife still from now and then smelling my breath and doing things like that to figure out, mm, you look a bit funny today. <laughs> oh, now, okay. <laughs> and it was, you know, it is, it was there. It was what it was because as addicts, we do, we do not so nice things. And one of them is we lie. Whenever our lips move, we probably have lied. So the family has heard it all before. So there is that. But that's, but a, that's a symptom of the addiction, you know, Correct. and when hopefully when someone gets into recovery, that's no longer an issue. But boy, mm. if you want to send somebody backwards, all you have to do is treat them like they're still they're still an active addiction. Exactly. I mean, that that's and it's hard not to do. But what we need this is so I, I this is the, my perfect scenario. I work as I do work as a family recovery coach. I work with families one-on-one. -on -one. I had this family that their son was in treatment in Ireland and um, 
they they were doing he was doing really well but there was no plan to reintegrate him back now he had i think four or five months in ireland in this treatment center in ireland and which is great because you really i, I mean this is another thing that family do, families don't know anything about post-acute withdrawal syndrome and that it can last up mm. to two years mm. and we expect that you know you okay you were away for four weeks and mm. you know Aunt Jean had her appendix out and she's fine now. So you, you must be fine after four weeks. You had plenty of time. She only took, you only took her a week and a half and she was mowing the lawn, you know, but it's, so it doesn't work like that. It can take up to two years for somebody's dopamine levels and serotonin to be back into, back to normal again. So we, um, I mean, we're just not, we're not taking into any of those things into consideration. So this family had um, realized that, when he came, when he came home, he was going to need. They were going to need to get educated, mm. and when he came home, they were going to need to have a plan. But this wasn't part of the treatment centers, like ideas. So we did six, seven weeks of education and and trying to make a plan with him, because beautiful. I don't know if this is the same kind of wording there, but they, people talk about contracts. We're going to sign a family contract. We're going to sign a contract. Mm. No, you don't. You need to have a working agreement because everybody's got to buy into it, right? You have to have the family needs to buy into it. And the person that is in treatment did not become an imbecile. They are still able to make decisions. They're still the same person you loved. They just have an illness. We don't take all their power away and tell them what to do now. That's not going to work. <laughs> because nobody buys into that. So there has to be buy-in from both sides. We need to sit down, make this mm. plan, and understand what life is going to look like when they come home and be ready for the problems. And that's why we educate ourselves mm. and, and make the decisions when everything is good. So we know what it's going to look like if it doesn't mm. get... if it, And this way, we don't have to try to micromanage people. Because from my experience, people that are in treatment are much harder mm. on themselves. So if you say, well... What's going to happen if you get high again? And they'll be much tougher than even you would have come up with. So <laughs> we make the plan when everybody is well. Right. And we, so this family did everything right. They had everybody involved in it. They had the brother, the two brothers, the girlfriend, everybody was in on it. They made the plan with him and he, you know, they had everything in place. They had a therapist in place. They had, it was wonderful. And just the other day, uh, the son called me to see if uh, I would give him some advice. He really wants to work in in, in treatment someday and oh, excellent. become a counselor. Yeah. So this is this is how it works when it works, you know. Mm. And it's it like it's not rocket science. It's common sense. <laughs> and these are like the things that I realized when my daughter was going through this, and I didn't get any of those things. What would have made it better, you know? Mm. And I think we have to start looking at that because it's obvious long term, longer term, at least, and, mm -hmm. and family involvement and education for prevention and building resiliency and those types of things for young people. Mm -hmm. It's not enough to tell them drugs are bad. We have to teach young people what happens, what goes on, mm -hmm. the actual science behind it. And we also have to teach people how to be resilient so they don't try for the first time. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are just, this is like, these are all no brainers just when not doing it for some reason. But again, you you have highlighted the necessary steps, and they are logical for you and me who have been there. Uh, we have, like a snake, shed off that skin of shame and guilt and taboo, and and we have we have dropped that 
that outside. We have dropped that and we are willing to learn. We are willing to engage. We're willing to be honest due to our experiences because we figured out that by doing exactly that, being honest and being open, that's how you change things. But that is not necessarily something that our society is doing well. There are certain subgroups which are doing it really well. Um, typically, those people who are in recovery, for example, or the, the loved ones of them. But uh, if we say that 95% of alcoholics will deny that they have any problem, that also extrapolates that these 95% will probably not seek treatment. So therefore, you, here you've got one in 20 uh, who are seeking treatment, treatment. The others uh, deny it and are not ready yet. If we now say the same thing for schools, uh, the one in 20 who are actually doing something, for the workplace, one in 20. Mm -hmm. And let's be honest here, the workplace is the only reason they, they start doing something is because occupational health and safety sometimes forces them. We have got a huge uh, bush and, and, and timber industry here. And when you work with machines that are bigger than my house, then, well, surprise, surprise, you're not very good when you're actually high, drunk, or a mixture thereof. So the drug testing came in because we had deaths in, in this kind of industry, because people were doing stupid things. But that was not because the employer said, oh, we really want to do the right thing. No, that is because occupational health and safety forced them to. So there is this lack of awareness and uh, this, or lack of, I, sh I shouldn't say lack of awareness. Deep down, probably a lot of people know that there's so many of us who are in trouble but it's a lack of willingness to engage and to tackle a problem that seems so insurmountable as right. a task. So, and it's so multifaceted. And the schools are saying, why should we, you know, we are here for the academic kind of side and we don't have the funding to have a school nurse or five school nurses, all of which are counselors uh, and are able to deal with the young people. There is no funding on that. They don't know how to get their science lab sorted, uh, leave alone their, their, that kind of side of things. So they say, no, that should be the parents. And the parents say, no, no, sorry, I'm working the whole day. And in the evening, uh, for Christ's sake, when do I get a bit of a timeout? Uh, it's all that. So it's always someone else's job, isn't it? I mean, it's, but unless we all decide collectively as a society that this is important. Exactly. And I think that the more we go out and we speak and people like you and I that are out there speaking and, and get rid of that mm. stigma, that, that that will be accepted. Mm. But I was um, a special education teacher, a mm. middle school special education teacher. So that happy age around 13, I was, I was a special education teacher. And um, my specialty was kids with a language-based learning disability. So mm. um, I, I learned to teach in lots of different ways. And their requirements for their special for the extra services that they needed interfered with their ability to um, be able to uh, learn the general cur curriculum because there's only so many hours in the day. So I would take the general curriculum and and take those things that they needed, those special services, and mm. use the, the general curriculum to to um, was part of me doing that. Okay, so this is um, something we should be doing in the schools. Mm -hmm. So part of the science curriculum, it doesn't have to be separate. Part of the science curriculum should be learning about the physiology of addiction. And we mm -hmm. should be t teaching this from the time people are very, kids are very young, 
all through the grades and little bit, little bit harder, little bit more intense, little bit more intense until we get to the age of around sixth grade, seventh grade, when we can really be talking about, um, about what's going on in somebody's brain. There's ways of, of putting this into the general curriculum when it's such a tremendous problem. And if you add all, all addictions together, it's a tremendous problem. It may not be the same drugs, but we, mm. we have mm. a, trim, a huge problem in this world with addiction, and mm. we should be doing these things. And it's a can't-lose situation. You teach kids in, in, uh, in their, in their mm. gym class or PE, whatever you mm. call I don't know what you call it there, but um, in their physical education class that mm. had to meditate. Meditation oh, yes. is, is yes. the answer for trauma, for yeah. addiction, for yeah. dis- feel that feelings of disconnection, for yeah. just learning how to be in your body. Yeah. Teach that. Do they really need to know how to play volleyball? Absolutely. I mean, if you like volleyball, that's great. But I think that there's room for this in there if we have our priorities together right. and we don't. And we don't. We just keep looking at it and saying it's going to be too much money. We can't do that. Mm. Yeah, you can. We can do lots of things if we really want to. We just spend a lot of time wringing our hands saying mm. we can't do it. Mm. Well, you could exp- extrapolate that. So if Johnny has got $400 a month, uh, but his wife Mary is using $380 of that for heroin, uh, how much has Johnny left to pay the rent? <laughs> so you, you can go. do maths, you can do, <laughs> you can do everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right, exactly. So I think, the, yeah, I'm, I'm facetious here, but hey, you're right, you're right. It's a matter of okay. willingness of actually addressing these kind of things. And we have to think out of the box a little bit, yeah, you know? Correct. God forbid. But it is it is those kind of things. When you actually do that, you start a ripple effect. You start a butterfly effect. Little uh, little changes like that. You have no idea where they are leading to. If you were, uh, many moons ago, there was uh, Jamie Oliver, a famous English chef. Who, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. And he went to to poor boroughs, uh, poor parts of the town uh, in where he lived. And he started with one school and uh, making school dinners and basically educated the school dinner lady who was so far uh, serving sislas of some unidentified thing they call meat there. Um, basically shit. And yeah. then they, they changed it and they changed their attitude, et cetera, of the whole school. And suddenly the flow on effects were enormous, far less interruptions in class, far less sickness calls, uh, asthma went down massively, stuff like that. So the flow on effects of just changing nutrition and starting self-love, self-care of highlighting actually how to look after yourself with such a simple thing. Wow. And that was one intervention. Right. So imagine that combine another little intervention, for example, a sports talk to actually say, okay, guys, today, yes, we're going to talk about, uh, about training for football, but we also talk about doping. What does it actually do? Do you really want to have penis that size and boobs that size, boys? No, then maybe the doping is not such a clever idea. And, you know, you, would, you could start with that and then say, well, actually, you know, if you're, you want to be in your peak performance, and yes, of course, there are drugs that, that make you feel stronger and maybe make you stronger. Cocaine, you do a cocaine before a workout, uh, just as much you know, as we take a, a coffee before a meeting. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. But you can talk about it in a natural way. 
and say, right. this, this is the, the, the stuff, what it does, and educate and highlight and show things. I think by doing so, we could, we could raise the awareness amongst our youngsters and, and strengthen their resolve. Because I certainly, in, in, in my kids, when they were you know, three, four years, five years ago, when they were sort of 13, 14, um, I asked them, hey, look, you know, how easy is it get for you to get drugs? Very easy, right. very easy. And I was astounded. And the interesting thing was they went to different schools, one of them to a public school, a public in the sense of a uh, normal school for everyone out there. Um, then my other son went to a more Christian private school. Um, same, same shit, same yeah. everywhere, exactly. Yeah. Drugs everywhere, easily available. Uh, not so nice behaviors around, including bullying everywhere, but maybe in the, in the public school, there was maybe even a bit more of an interest to address it, although that is arguable. Um, the, in the other school, maybe a bit more rejection of even the thought that something like that could happen in our Christian environment. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So it was interesting. So there are so many, so many hurdles that we need to overcome. And I commend you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm truly honored and humble. To, to have met you, Maureen, because you're there and you're trying to make this, this world a little bit of a better place. One interview uh, after the other, one book after the other. I need to show you a book again. Guys out there here, uh, you know, if you love me, and that means so much, you know, it, it's, it's such a beautiful title, actually. If you love me, you would just stop doing that. Well, no, How it's often not... do we do that, right? Uh, exactly. Do you know, do you know where the title came from? Oh. Um, one, one night after, you know, years of this, like I said, 40 different entries into treatment, um, 13 overdoses that brought her blue and dead to the hospital, and probably another 20 that somewhere somebody had Narcan and reversed it. Um, she uh, had been doing well and came home after um, and, 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 and was living out of the house, had made some really great friends. And she had probably about three or four months. It was the longest she ever had and um, disappeared. And some great sober friends went out, which sober people are the best people in the whole world because they stick together like nothing I've ever seen before. And um, they went out looking for her and can't, brought her home at about three o'clock in the morning. She, she was in my house, sitting on the floor of the kitchen, dirty and crying and just, oh God, so disappointed and ashamed and, and it was awful. And I looked at her and I said, sweetie, I love you so much and you're gonna die. And she looked back at me and she said, if you love me, you'd let me die. And that was when I really understood how much pain she was in. And um, that's why I had to name the book, If You Love Me, because that was probably the moment where I thought, I mean, I thought I got it, but I didn't get it. I didn't really get it. And it was the, the sincerity in what, with which she said that, that I knew that she really mm. was Mentored. hanging on. Yeah, she was hanging on just for really for us, for her family. And um, now... For almost four years sober, she's just bought a car. She just signed a lease on a new apartment. 
Um, she's in school. She's got a great job and was one of those people that sat by um, people with COVID and bathed them and combed their hair and held the phone up to them when they were in the hospital dying. She's one of those people. She works in a hospital now and she's an amazing, amazing person. So thank God she's still here because the world needs her. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't be any prouder of, of her. And um, I think the book is funny too, isn't it? I mean, it is funny. It it's is hard to imagine, but it is funny. Absolutely, and I, that's that's why I loved your style. You, you were so honest. You were just down to the point. There was there was no more hiding. I yeah. I hate hiding, and that was the last thing you did in this book. You were honest to the to the to the nth degree. Uh, I had to make it funny, though. You wouldn't be able to read it if it if it if I didn't have the dark, weird sense of humor that I have. I don't think people would be able to get through it. And you gotta love my my crazy Irish ex husband too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> See, a lot of spoilers there, guys. Get that bloody book, read it. <laughs> no, that's brilliant, Maureen. Thank you so much for again coming thank onto you. my show. You did a fantastic job in in highlighting the the facts about the opioid crisis uh, in the United States. But more importantly, to to point out that regardless where you are, guys, in this world, we are all the same people with all the same dopamine receptors, with all the same underlying trauma that we want to numb the pain for and the desire to just be happy. And far too many of us are tempted to achieve that state artificially with whatever whatever addiction we, we currently have. Um, may it be overeating, may it be alcohol, may it be gambling, may it be sex. There are so many different addictions out there. They're all the same path, but some of them are more likely to kill you. And unfortunately, the opiates must be very high there on the list. And fentanyl must be even higher there on the list because it's such a narrow window, a therapeutic window between hey, I feel good, and hey, what are these pearly gates doing here? Yeah. Exactly. So, therefore, thank you so much for coming onto my show, and more importantly, thank you so much for the work that you're doing out there. Um, please tell us again your uh, your website and the, the links that uh, guests can, can find sure. you. Sure. Um, they can find me at maureencavanaugh.net. They can uh, find the Zoom groups that we run at uh, and the coaching services at magnoliarecoveryresources.com. Mm. And then they can find the, um, the Facebook groups at magnolianewbeginnings.org. And we're a, we're a nonprofit too, so we do lots of good work. Brilliant. There's no doubt about that. Guys, look down there into the description of the podcast and the YouTube video, and you find her links there. Maureen. It was a beautiful, beautiful interview. Thank you again so much for coming onto my show. Thank you for your time, for your effort, for your passion. And let that light not go out. And who knows, one day your daughter might sit next to you and uh, has come to the point in her journey where she starts to 
become vocal about it and yeah. it is this is very much on the cards she may choose to she may not choose to uh in my experience it is more a question of when will she choose to um, oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I agree. It's just beautiful. I can't wait. Uh, I can't wait to have her on my show then in due course. <laughs> <laughs> let her know. Let exactly. Her know. <laughs> exactly. Give her a big hug from me. And, I, de and I definitely will. That's right. Cool. And you guys out there, I know if you if you can't hug someone directly, pick up the phone or send a text. I am thinking of you um, and hang in there. Something like that can mean the world to someone. Okay. Look after yourself, guys. Bye.